Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where I would invite you to turn, page 807 in our church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to read the first five verses of chapter 2. So it was in the late spring of 2008 when I read these words that I'm, we're going to read from the Bible for the first time to our congregation. It was the first time, the first words I spoke actually, I was, I was candidating and these were the words that I read and I chose to read. So here we are full, full circle on such a lovely morning. When I came to you brothers, and we could say sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Let's bow our heads, please. We thank God for His Word read this morning, and let's pray. Oh, gracious God, many of us would freely admit this morning that we have such a wild heart and such a wayward tongue and a conscience that has not known brokenness or conviction as often as it should. And yet, God, in spite of this terrible reality, you have set your love upon us. You brought us into your family, promised us power to live holy lives, displaying a great amount of patience with us and our ongoing struggle with sin. And Father, you've done that for only one reason. It is because your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on a tree. Therefore, Jesus, for those of us who belong to you, you are our only righteousness, holiness, and redemption, so that our only boast this morning is in you. So this morning, as your word is preached in weakness, give us all ears to hear and attuned only to your voice, and may all of us be different as a result of what we discover from these verses this morning. So Father, please help us now in our weakness to all your appointed ends, for Jesus' sake. Amen. How flimsy the foundation of our faith and our lives if any part of them are vested in the wisdom of man, vested in the wisdom of this age, chapter 2, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, which is coming to nothing. Human wisdom and philosophy is always the same by dent of principle. It begins with man. It begins with man and his mind and his view and his ability and his outlook. God becomes less and less necessary. His authority given through his word becomes more and more secondary. Now, certainly many things have changed since the time this letter was penned by Paul to the church in Corinth. Two millennia of nations rising and falling. Science and technology advancing, the population ever increasing. And while things have changed, 
the thought that the new unseats the old and much of what is old is archaic or no longer is needed or no longer wise to use surely runs through the minds of modern men and modern women. And this thought is, of course, true, very true in terms of, for example, the advances and blessings in medicine. Thank God that we don't do bleedings for healings anymore. It's true in terms and proofs of the way we uh, have transportation or advances in communication or efficiency in industry. However, it becomes a peculiar challenge to the church because as those things are rightly true in the kingdom of man, it becomes far too easy to think that the same is true in the kingdom of God. Raising the question, is the message that Paul proclaimed week in and week out to the church in Corinth an equally legitimate and and needed message, message in Cohasset this morning or any other place in this modern age? Is the message of Christ crucified for sin, is it outdated? Is it really, really going to connect with, quote, teens? Is it really, really the only cure for this soul-sick age? The only cure for an age that has everything but still cannot be fully satisfied in anything? Is it really the only message, the message of Christ crucified? Or maybe there's another. Or, or maybe there's more. So we might say to the church, okay, we'll give them the cross up front. But, but, but you know, we must move very quickly past the bloody cross. We need broader horizons if things are going to be good. And the times and feel of our age surely lends itself in a thousand different ways to these ideas. However, when you think a bit harder, and we need to think a bit harder, and consider that, yes, yes, it's very obvious that times have changed in the world that Paul wrote into in Corinth, but it's also very equally obvious that times have changed, yes, but many things still remain the same. So people still fall in love, just like they did in Corinth. And people still struggle with lust, just like they did in Corinth. And people still battle their fears and still struggle with guilt and still struggle with sin, just like they did in Corinth. And people still face death, sin's penalty, just like they did in Corinth. Therefore, because that is true, it stands to reason then that for humanity's unchanging condition, we need an unchanging message to answer them. And we need that message delivered in an unchanging way. And that, of course, is Paul's conviction in 1 Corinthians. That although the world changes, many changes of which we should thank God for, however, God's truth in Jesus Christ crucified is unchanging. And here we are, if we're in Christ this morning, here we are, 2,000 years removed from Paul, and we're still clinging to the same gospel promises, still relying on the same gospel assurances, still bowing to gospel decrees, and still realizing that our only hope in life and death has always been Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. It never goes beyond that. And so Paul, in verse 17, you can see there if your Bible is open, we see he was very clear about his mission. He was to preach the gospel, despite the fact that the wisdom and power of the gospel was thought of as foolish and weak by men. And he has been working down this line of power only through weakness through the beginning of chapter 1 to a divided church which has gotten off track, thirsty for the wrong type of power. So we need to hear Luther again. Remember Luther said this, the paradox of gospel weakness, only the prisoner shall be free, only the poor rich, only the weak strong, only the humble exalted, only the empty filled, only the nothing shall be something. And if you're thinking, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus because Jesus said the exact same thing in Luke 6. Woe to you who are rich. 
but blessed are you who poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Woe to you who are well fed. But of course, the Corinthian church is struggling with this tr- truth. Churches always have struggled with this truth as it wants power and it wants to be in control, wants to be something to stand out, to make a name for itself and have this type of control for all the wrong reasons. Therefore, Paul straightforwardly lays down this truth in verse 25. Do you see it there? The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And to drive this point home, he immediately provides an illustration. Verse 26, do you want to see why power through weakness is true, Corinthian church? Then just look at yourself. That's what he says in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when God called you. And if they were prepared to be honest, and you should always be honest, you would say, well, we weren't very much. And God did this purposely to show that you owe everything to God in Christ and nothing to a mere man, Peter, Paul, Apollos, preaching Christ other than Christian kindness and patience and deportment and the respect that all God's people should receive. And God did this to clearly show, verse 30, it's only of God. That you are all His, all your salvation, only of God. Why? Well, so that no one may boast. It's about technique. It's about methodology. It's about themselves or some other man or other woman. And now in chapter 2, he provides a further illustration of power revealed in weakness by putting himself forward. So it's one thing to put others forward to make a main and plain point. Perhaps a difficult point to admit. However, it's quite another to put yourself forward, but that's exactly what Paul does. He uses now himself as an illustration. And in both these circumstances, he's trying to make this main and plain point, and here it is. The unchanging message of the cross of Jesus Christ, regarded as foolishness in Corinth, and Cohasset for that matter, remains the message and the only message, the only message, the only message which the church is given to proclaim irrespective of the changes of the world. For the latter will always be changing. But the former will be always be needed because the need is always the same. This is God's wisdom wonderfully displayed in what seems like foolishness. And it is in that foolishness that God, as Paul said in chapter 1, is pleased to save. So we take all those thoughts, carry them with us as we work through these three points. You can see them on the back of your worship folder. How Paul arrived, what Paul preached, and why Paul was careful when he preached it. So first of all, then, how Paul arrived in Corinth. And you can see if your Bibles are open that he gives us that answer in verses 1 and verses 3. So do you remember a few weeks ago when we kind of tracked back into the book of Acts somewhere around verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, and we learned how Paul got to Corinth. And so we heard that he took a total beat down in Macedonia, thrown in the street, left for dead because he was preaching Christ. And after he came to Philippi, Acts 16, he met with initial success. Everybody liked him, but then later on, they stripped him down and beat him again. Yet thankfully, God intervenes. He always does. He then goes to Thessalonica to preach Jesus Christ crucified. Yet in spite of the fact that people are receiving the message, he meets with gangs and riots and they want him out of town. And though off he goes to Berea. And he again, he meets with measure of success initially, but then his ministry is hounded by agitators. They're everywhere. And people trying to stir the crowds against him. Paul then goes to Athens, a city full of idols, Acts 17, 17, which greatly distressed him. And that's the condition that Paul arrives in Corinth into. 
because he was preaching Christ crucified, beaten down physically, and distressed mentally. Now think with me for a moment. That's not the ideal condition you want to go as you set your, off, your way off for Jesus, especially in the case of Paul as a middle-aged, crooked-nosed, crooked-legged, balding man in such a booming metropolis like Corinth. In other words, single ladies, Paul was not a looker, okay? And you add to that, when he goes into Corinth, he doesn't know anyone. Anyone. Now, many a modern missionary association would do what they could not to send their missionaries out the way that God sent Paul. So what does Paul arrive to town with? Well, he has three things. Here they are. You ready? Christ who sent him, the message Christ sent him with, and massive weakness. That's all he's got. That's how Paul arrived into Corinth. And you can see in verse 1 that he also did not arrive with some things. I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And so to understand that phrase, we need to understand the background to the situation in Corinth, specifically in regard to rhetoric, or if you like, public speaking. Eloquence and superior wisdom, these are technical phrases used by Paul for public speaking in Corinth. These are the things that Paul did not take into Corinth with him, but these were the things that the culture of Corinth demanded from him. And it wasn't as if Paul could not employ these techniques if he wanted to. He was well trained, but he was unwilling to employ this worldly wisdom in the preaching of the cross. However, the reason why this is so significant was because in the context of his day, the speakers in Corinthian circumstances were committed to these types of rhetorical devices. And if you, and if you were not eloquent, and if you were not impressive, if you didn't do it for the crowds, therefore, if you were not willing to use these devices, either no one would listen to you, or they would label you as someone who just didn't do it for them. So the temptation was, in order to draw a crowd and get their attention... You're going to have to do something. It's the same way Sunday by Sunday. Now, what I'm going to say never happens in the second service. It only happens in the first service. Of course, I said the same thing in the first service. But anyway, I see you nodding off. Some of you flipping through your bulletins, looking over there, passing babies around. There's so many of them. And so the challenge for me is, how in the world am I going to speak to these people that God loves and I love as well? And you're sensible people. One of the ways is to manipulate, manipulate you through rhetorical device. Make them laugh. Make them cry. Stir them up. Move them to tears. All the tricks of the trades. Use all your natural ability. And the byproduct, though, was in Corinth, was a simply attaching people to themselves. So that when all is said and done, when we all go home, all they say is, well, that was a great story. That was a funny story. Instead of praise God for such a wonderful Savior, and off I go into the world ready to take Jesus to it. You see, Paul could have used the tricks of the trade. He was easily capable of that, but he did not do that. He rejected the popular notions of his day on a speaking style and rhetoric because that was part of the problem. They liked the messengers more than the message. In fact, the message didn't even matter. It was how they felt emotionally in the listening now, if you don't think that that has something to do with 21st century uh, life in, in God's church, then pay attention. It does. So someone asked the question, surely Paul's practice threatened his results. Surely he would have done better if he spoke like one of them. Isn't that what we hear today? We need to speak like them. Well, did Paul risk 
failure? Yes. Would he come across as not really being smart and maybe a bit, bit foolish? Yes. A bit dry? Maybe to some. But did that stop him? No. The two words that Paul used that he said he didn't come into Corinth with eloquence and superior wisdom, as I said, were technical words. It described the kind of speech of the day that would be used in public speaking, debates, law courts, things like that. It was a tremendously popular way of speaking. And in time, as it always does, it became a popular form of entertainment. Gradually, it became an end to itself. Mere bells and whistles. Crowd pleasers, but no serious content. In fact, it got to be such a big deal that they gave these people a name. They were called sophists. And a sophist, and I'm going to quote from John Stott here, was an orator who emphasized style over substance, form over content, the goal was applause, the mode of personal vanity and financial gain, and the casualty truth, which may be an accurate description of many so-called contemporary evangelists and preachers. Blow into town, all fired up, give a few talks, sell a few t-shirts, sell a few books, earn some income, and blow out of town all the promises promised but never seen. Therefore, what Paul is saying in verse 1 was that he refused to use that kind of method of address that was so in people's faces that all they could remember was the way in which it was said and they could not remember at all what was said. And and I don't want you to misunderstand me. Paul here is not saying that that he did not speak in a clear, intelligent, logical progression. He's not saying that he he somehow wasn't himself when, when he preached. And don't think, you know, well, I guess I can be a lazy pastor and I'll just sit on a Thursday and it'll all just come to me. And I don't have to think hard. I don't have to read thick books. I don't have to sweat over my talks and cry a little bit. I don't have to practice my talks. And I don't have to read a a freshman uh, English comp book to help me with things. Paul said, I did not come into Corinth and play your game and whistle your tune and stand on my box and go on the way you like it. I didn't do that. Paul's strategy was not to please them and captivate them. You could say for a 21st century preacher, his strategy wasn't just to keep his job. He wanted to see God convert them and he wanted to see God mature them. Therefore, he stands against the tide of his day and not only what he said, but in the way that he said it. There's a tremendous line in the Gospel of John that Jesus said, and I cling to this all the time. Jesus said, I not only say what my father wants me to say, but I say it the way he wants me to say it. Now, that's what he didn't have. He didn't have superior wisdom. He didn't have eloquence. Okay, so what did he, what did he have? Because he's going to need some stuff. Well, look at your Bible. Verse 3. You ready? This is what he had. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. <laughs> Terrific. Weakness, fear, and he had the shakes. I have the shakes all the time. Told you that before. I always get the shakes. Hudson Taylor. All God's giants have been weak people. So Paul goes into Corinth, beaten down, and not like the people of our day, with, a, with all guns ablazing. here we go. He wouldn't have come into a city then, staying at the Plaza Hotel, would he? He wouldn't have gotten picked up by a limo, dropped off at the stadium, proclaimed to thousands, three clever stories, three clever principles, none of which would be soaking with the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe just a speck of blood, just, you know, for a little bit of garnish. So they can't say, I'm not Christian. The limo then takes him off to his room, 
where he meets with only certain people, usually the press, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, or some high officials, or maybe notable people of the town, or for some lucky Christian who, who won the equivalent of backstage pass on the radio station just so he can shake his hand. Loved ones, that is stupid. And Paul would not do that stuff. In fact, the very first thing that came to my mind when I sat down and read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, was Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because how did Jesus Christ enter this world? He came in weakness, a wee little child, and surely he was trembling, coming out of naked and wet from his mother's womb on such a night like that, lying in a feeding box. It wasn't the Ritz-Carlton, was it? He comes in a very real sense in obscurity to the world. And how did Jesus leave the world on the cross? God always turns the values and the things that we seek after in the world upside down. Paul arrives in Corinth and insignificant. He's alone. He's weak. He's afraid. But he was sent by Christ. He was sent by Christ. And so the reason that we went down that line in Acts a few moments ago about what a beaten Paul took when he went uh, through town to town is because surely Paul was weak. Yes, he was weak. We would have been weak too if we'd been beaten to a pulp like he was. His, I just think his little body was just beaten down to death. And surely because of the, the tremendous amount of beatings that he took, his body would have been awful hard to look at. So I guarantee you he would not be wearing a muscle shirt when he was preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we should thank God that weakness is the key to God's power because there's an association between weakness and power. It's, it's hard sometimes. It is hard, but it's true. Between the beatings that we take and God's power. Between our softness and our inability to affect the culture with the gospel and the fascination that so many have with the best life now. Too often we might be running off for the wrong things and running away from the right things. And at least I know that is true of me. C.S. Lewis, this is what he said. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. You know, I have no doubt in my mind that if, if Paul would enroll in the seminaries of our day, probably in many of them, he would have been regarded as, as very unpromising material. I remember when I left my school, I had to do an exit interview. It's funny the things that you remember when when um, you're thinking along these lines, the very first thing all my professors said to me was, Joe, <laughs> when you first came here, we didn't think you were going to make it. And you know, I cherish those words now. In fact, I suspect that not a week goes by when I don't think of those things. Okay, how did Paul arrive? No clever techniques, no man wisdom. He just comes beat up, afraid, weak, and trembling. Okay, so then what does Paul preach? Well, it's there in verse 2, isn't it? For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some translations of verse 2 read it like this. I determined to be ignorant of everything except Jesus Christ 
and Jesus Christ crucified. This is J.B. Phillips' translation. It was my secret determination to concentrate entirely on Jesus Christ and the fact of his death upon the cross. Now ask yourself, was that unique to Corinth? Did Paul only preach Christ and him crucified in Corinth? So he went, to, uh, went as an intellectual to Athens, Acts 17. He was a spiritualist to the Ephesians, but he was different in Corinth. Well, the Italians have a name for that kind of person. My dad used to call me this when I was little. Tufacha. Two-face. Two-face. Is that what Paul did? He, he was a man pleaser, so he pleased him this way there and pleased him that way there. No, he did not. Well, how do you know? Well, read your Bibles. Check out the material. He gets the door open for his preaching by understanding their circumstance. But once the listener is through the door, he only has one string to his bow. He only has one note on his music sheet. And what do you think it is? It's verse 2. Jesus Christ and him crucified. You mean he doesn't preach about high taxes? No. You mean he doesn't deal with boredom? No. Physical health? No. Higher plane living? No. A life of purpose? No. Social security and the coming economic earthquake? No. He doesn't talk about hearing the voice of God or America's doom or how we can have complete victory over everyone and everything. You mean he doesn't do that? No. What does he do? Verse 1, the counsel or the testimony of God. Verse 2, the message of Christ and him crucified. So when Paul would go week by week, he would say, talk about the nature of God, the work of the Spirit, the necessity of church, the person of Christ, his nature, all the Christian victories won at Calvary, the deportment of Christians, how they should carry themselves in the world because they're in Christ, and on and on and on. Everything was always attached to Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if you ever hear a talk that doesn't have some blood in it, it's not a talk from the Bible. I promise you that. It's not a talk from the Bible. So sometimes people try to take Jesus' death into some kind of, you know, sad, sick love story. Don't do that. Sometimes, you know, we want to turn Jesus into our example. He's the hero. See, kids, Jesus was a champion, and you can be a champion too. So look at Jesus go, and off you go, and whatever you want to do, oh, yes, you can do it. Believe it with your heart, and oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I got a book this week, uh, Expository Listening. Listen to this quote in the book. The church growth movement that boomed in the 1980s and 90s came to the conclusion that preaching is outdated in a media-savvy age. Surveys said that listeners wanted amusing stories, motivational talks, which addressed practical problems of life's challenges, the wisdom of this age, and how to cope. And many a church just latched on to that. At that time, 55% of people could be found in a church in America. Now, it hovers around 30. In other words, so instead of going into the Bible and getting God's wisdom, they went to the masses and got their wisdom. Now, you think with me for a moment. It is difficult to hear that we are wicked rebel sinners. It is hard to understand that we are absolutely hopeless without God. All our human pride is stripped down. Our self-esteem is radically undermined. And then to find out that our only hope is to repent in de- de- uh, dust and ashes because we've been exposed as the gospel is preached, that is difficult. And that is the gospel. But it's not the full gospel, is it? And half a gospel is really no gospel at all. So once the cross is preached, then all of a sudden the display of God's love is revealed. The victories won for us at Calvary are are revealed. We walk into this world as justified people. 
righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God every day, no matter what comes our way. Grace abounding over the wickedest of sins. Promise to be made holy. These are our gospel promises. Forgiven, shown mercy. God works out everything for good. And there ain't no quitting in God's perseverance with us. Countless blessings. Why? All because I preached the cross and I wasn't moaning about higher taxes or boredom or health or whatever it is they do in pulpits around the country. You know, I, I think about things, and this might not be exactly correct, but I, I think, why don't Christians carry themselves with respect and just absolute clarity and humility and joy? And I'm thinking, maybe they don't know that Jesus is king, and maybe they don't know the gospel promises. It is a difficult world out there. I understand that. I live in that difficult world more than what you know. But at the end of the day, if I die... Or if I lose everything because of Jesus Christ, I am bound for his heaven forever. See, that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Final point. Point number one, how Paul arrived. Verses one and three, no no clever techniques. Weak, fearful. What did Paul preach? Jesus Christ and him crucified and loved ones, read through the Bible and you'll discover that when we preach the Bible correctly, then we will always preach about Christ and the cross. Always. Okay, then why was Paul so careful in his preaching? That's verses four and five. Let me read those verses for you. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. So here is Paul's concern. His concern was in the fact that when he looked in the mirror and saw how impoverished he was, how totally inadequate he was, he himself called himself the the worst of all sinners. And then he looked at the people and saw how desperate their need was. And when he looked at God and saw the calling on his life, he did not want to do anything that could encumber or inhibit in the proclamation of Jesus in such a way that the people would be attached to him, thereby missing what God was saying. In other words, that your faith might not rest on God, but on men's wisdom. Hence the problem. Some follow Cephas. Some follow Paul. Some follow Apollos. Therefore, missing the fact that a person's faith rests on God alone. And that was Paul's concern. And that, what, that is what ought to be every pastor's concern. Okay, so if you ask me a question. Do you get nervous preaching? Answer, yes. Preaching scares the dickens out of me. Well, why does it scare the dickens out of you? Is it the people? No. Not usually. Is it because you don't know what to say? Well, no, because I'm such a poindexter that I write everything down. (laughs) Okay, then what's the problem after all these years? Well, here is where my concern lies. The concern is that after I've done it all and done it wrong, I, by my preaching, may fasten the people to that which is shallow, superficial, fleeting, extraneous, and thereby failing in the very responsibility given to me, which was to attach them to the living God himself. 
Now, I want you to understand this. I have to do this and not get in God's way. So someone might have a 20-year run of preaching and then look back and either see nothing of the power of God effective in their ministry or when they go and leave, the whole thing just diminishes because you're, you weren't built on the right foundation. And then the pastor has to finish that off standing before Almighty God and giving account for all these things. So that's where my concern is. So I have to preach the kind of message in the kind of manner that God, by His Spirit, will own. Right? God, by His Spirit, will own so that your minds and your lives are captured and captivated by Christ alone. And that your lives will bear witness to Jesus Christ and really, really, honestly, honestly, truly, truly, bear fruit for Jesus Christ. So when I come behind this pulpit, especially on a day like this, I am in such massive need of your prayers before I ever reach the box. I wrote down a prayer. If you want to pray it for me, God, please give him the message, preach in the manner that you by your spirit will own. Again, God, please give him the message, preach in a manner that you by your spirit will own. Because every conversion and every sermon involves an encounter between Christ and the evil one. Don't think so? Well, listen to Jesus. This is Jesus. Soil number one in the parable of the the sower. Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown into them. Do you understand that? So in this humble setting, the evil one could come after me blurting out for 35 minutes and just take it from your mind and heart and just throw it away. And you walk out of here and you go, well, he wasn't really good that day. He wasn't having his best day that day. And all of along, who was it? It was the evil one. In the shadows, doing what he does best. Listen to your Bibles, please. We thank God, this is, this is Paul to the Thessalonians. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Hmm. You mean actually the word of God? Yes, actually the word of God. Okay. Power through weakness is God's way. It's not very comfortable, but it's God's way. Any other way will cause factions and friction and groupy type leanings and God will not own it. So this is what we have. We have a weak message. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Proclaimed by weak preachers full of fear and trembling. Preached in a weak manner. No worldly wisdom or clever eloquence. By a weak man. Take a good look at me. Received by weak listeners. Not many of you were wise and influential or notable. Throughout that whole uh, weakness event, God's power is manifested and God is pleased to save some. And so while the 21st century church in the West is just searching for power, trying to find her way, and just will do just about anything to, to get it back, whatever they think they might have lost, here we are with our Bibles open. And we see that God always works his great, wonderful power through weakness. 
through absolute weakness. Hmm. And you know, God's power is, is, is much more than he just helps me cope with things or he helps me with my nerves or he helps me feel loved or he helps me with my family. So some of you might have decided that you would jump on the Jesus train for only those things. But here's the problem. If you had to admit it, you're ashamed of Jesus Christ. You haven't told a person a lick about him. Truth is, you're not even sure that this whole cross stuff you're not even sure if it really, really matters. And if that is you, or if your life is just resting on feelings that come and go as things come and go, then I would just beg you to repent. Rest in God's gospel power. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you need it, then may God send his power for his glory to you even now. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from God and through God and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen.